You're listening to a lecture from the Asian World Center. On March 4th, 2014, at the Harper Center on the campus of Creighton University, Dr. Beverly Deep Kiever gave the lecture, Death Zones and Darling Spies, Seven Years of Vietnam War Reporting. A journalism professor at the University of Hawaii for 29 years before retiring in July of 2008, Beverly Deep Kiever is the author of Death Zones and Darling Spies, Seven Years of Vietnam War Reporting. Since her retirement, she has written her memoirs of covering the Vietnam War for seven years successfully for Newsweek, the New York Herald Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor, and the London Daily Express and Sunday Express. She has written numerous other articles for the academic, professional, and commercial publications while at the University of Hawaii and as a correspondent in Vietnam for Newsweek, the New York Herald Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor, and the London Daily and Sunday Expresses. Here is Dr. Beverly Deep Kiever with Death Zones and Darling Spies, Seven Years of Vietnam War Reporting. I am so honored and pleased to be here. Even though I was born in Nebraska uh, near Hebron and went to the university in Lincoln, this is the first time I've spent much time in Omaha and absolutely the very first time I've been to Creighton University. So it's a real privilege to be here and also to see what a lovely and big, spacious, student-friendly campus it is. People tell me it's even better in the summer. <laughs> but anyhow, I am so pleased to be here for the very, very first time. Well, there's been a lot of media attention recently on John F. Kennedy and uh, the assassination of him 50 years ago this past November was uh, a lot of flashbacks for all of us. Undoubtedly, one of President Kennedy's most faithful, fateful decisions related to Vietnam. It was a decision that was le to lead calling up hundreds of young men who uh, were drafted. Uh, so many of you, if you'd been in that era, would probably be putting on GI Green. I arrived in Vietnam just as Kennedy's decision was beginning to unfold when he increased the number of U.S. servicemen in Vietnam, thus breaking an international agreement made at the 1954 Geneva Peace Talks on French Indochina, and he introduced the U.S. support units, especially the helicopter units, which became the one that most people really identify with the war. So I arrived there in February 1962 and stayed there for seven years. I had planned to stay for only two weeks, and things just got bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, my first apartment that uh, uh, I lived in, it was pretty austere. It was concrete floors. It was cotton slipcovers on bamboo furniture. and. Um, there was no water that was safe to drink throughout the city. Even the best hotels, you had to boil your water or put in a, a pill. And uh, my maid had to go to the market every day to get fresh produce because there was no refrigeration. It was uh, also about two blocks from the presidential palace. Well, after I'd been here about two or three weeks, 
there were airplanes that came in and bombed the presidential palace. These were not enemy airplanes. These were his own Air Force pilots who were disenchanted with the regime. So that was my first real journalistic lesson that you don't learn in uh, textbooks. You not only had to get the story, you had to get it out of the country because the first thing the government did on something like that was to close the cable office where you could transmit uh, the news from uh, Saigon. But fortunately, there was a Time Magazine correspondent who was smart to that. The first thing he did is he picked up the telephone and got a, a Saigon dateline to tell about the bombing of the palace. And uh, after that, nobody else got the news out for days. Uh, so uh, he was uh, a guinea pig that showed the way for me, getting this story out of the um, out of the cable office and into the world. Unless you were on the spot where you uh, were disseminating the news, you couldn't use the dateline. So the Saigon dateline prevailed there. A year later, this place, when we had the coup against that president, for real, and toppled him, the place was looted. Uh, they didn't bother to take my Western dresses, but they scooped up all of my maids' Vietnamese dresses and so on. And about a year later, um, I was evicted from this place and went to a, a place that was actually much more closer to the cable office. When I first got there, Saigon was very much of a, uh, a Frenchified city. Uh, it was uh, very shady in most of the streets, and they would be selling flowers along some of the main thoroughfares and so on. So it was a beautiful city. And uh, not too many private automobiles, but there were little taxis, Renault taxis, that I took around town. Uh, but this was my favorite way to get around town with these kind of uh, rickshaws and uh, pedals. As I said, the first six months that I was there, I was a freelancer. And so I could travel around the country, no deadlines, no schedules, actually nobody to even tell me what I was supposed to be writing about. Uh, in a way, this was my most educational period because it was an entirely Vietnamese show. I felt that I was seeing you know, how Vietnam was before the American buildup uh, and the presence became so pronounced. Um, I interviewed about really interesting people at this time. There were only eight Western correspondents in Saigon at that time, and most of them were wire service guys, and of course they were all guys, that uh, could not really leave their office uncovered. They had to cover the government and big announcements. And so um, I wrote about things that were interesting, but they didn't have time to cover. And one of them was this fabulous nurse who had been sent to the jungled areas that um, she was treating what they call the hill people or the mountain yards in the jungle. And she would tell me about how they would come in with these really incredible diseases flocking to her little pink dispensary. Uh, another interesting woman that I tracked down and wrote about was a major, uh, Anne Doreen who had been born in Haiphong. She was by now a whack in Vietnam and the only American woman in uh, the service in Vietnam. So I wrote about her. And overall, there were about eight to 11,000 
American women that were assigned to Vietnam over the period of the year, most of the, the war. And most of these were nurses, and most of them were in the coastal city of Nha Trang. So uh, these were the kind of stories that I could do as a freelancer. And uh, it was uh, a really flexible time that you kind of scouted out. Of course, you never knew if you were going to sell the story. But AP was very generous in running most of these stories that I did send them. Uh, my first uh, big operation that I went on outside of Saigon was to a liberated zone. It was only 30 miles from Saigon, but by truck uh, you had to go in, and the communists had held this area under the French, and they were still dug in very much uh, in that area under the Saigon government. So only 30 miles from Saigon, the government still, in effect, had given some of the territory and the government over to what we called then the Viet Cong or the communists. So this was a little patrol that I went with uh, with the American ranger advisors in this training camp to sort of build up the Vietnamese ranger units. And on this patrol, it was kind of shadows and moonlight and rough roads and paths. And uh, I was kind of ducking around. And this one GI said to me, oh, don't worry about it. You never hear the bullet that gets you. <laughs> so after that, I never worried about being killed. I did worry about getting wounded and being a burden to my family or something. In all of this, of course, I had no health insurance of any kind, no life insurance. So it was a, a big risk for my family, too. Now, as Eileen mentioned, I had this job in New York where I was doing grassroots doorbell ringing interviewing for a syndicated columnist named Samuel Lubell. He had won a Guggenheim and published this book, The Future of American Politics. And uh, this book was translated into six languages, including Korean. I think you used it in your poli-sci classes in the old days. Anyhow, the trick was, what were the trends, the political trends, and why did people shift from one, like Eisenhower, to Kennedy? We looked at the Truman to Eisenhower shift. Why did people shift as the country shifted? We were very precise in picking what we called barometer precincts, and then good old shoe leather journalism, go out and interview. He felt... You had to go to the spot that shifted in order to get the real facts, not just big statistical databases. Anyhow, that's kind of what I wanted to do in Vietnam. I wanted to know how did the communists get this appeal to the masses out there in the uh, rice paddies and in the countryside. And, uh, and it was, of course, the guerrillas and their, their sales pitch that ended up defeating a superpower by that point. So I wanted to try to understand what Mao Zedong and the Vietnamese called the People's War. So this was the chapter that uh, I found most intriguing because um, I had done a lot of interviewing with defectors and prisoners and asking this question. And 
um, this was the first time that I saw face-to-face -face some of the people that were really doing it. These films were taken from an undeveloped roll of film on a dead Viet Cong soldier that an American soldier had taken uh, after the battle. And he gave it to my friend and photographer colleague, uh, Jim Pickrell. So when I got these photos from Jim, I decided, you know, this kind of put a face on what the Americans called their enemy. And uh, I felt this was the part of the war that uh, the American reading public probably knew the least about. Even though they knew about the guerrillas, they didn't really know why did the guerrillas fight as they did. So it turns out in identifying why they did do that among the various sources, uh, there were several reasons. One is the communists remembered that the Americans had backed the French heavily in the French Indochina War. So their propaganda was always uh, that we were just a disguised colonial regime following in the French footsteps. So this is what the masses were told, you know, even though the French were long gone. And uh, even the American ambassador Taylor, who was a general, kind of agreed that the Americans were misplaced in Vietnam. He was opposed to the combat troop buildup, even when he was an ambassador. And he was the general that uh, advised President Kennedy on a lot of the counterinsurgency. And he argued that uh, the white-faced soldier cannot be assimilated by the population. He cannot distinguish friendly from unfriendly Vietnamese. But more than that, the communists had a really important message in their own right. One is they um, promised the landless people land. Now, the Southerners didn't know that North Vietnamese, once they took control by the communists, had a very disastrous land reform program in the North. But they still promised that to the Southerners. And of course, most of the people in the farming areas were tenant farmers. So that had a lot of residents. They also had social clubs that they organized. Some of them were kind of like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. And they said they would sit around the campfire and sing songs just like, uh, you know, it was fun. It was exhilarating to be a young person in the communist movement, even, even though there were a lot of hardships and it was very tough uh, physically. But then the communists also used intimidation and terrorism. But they were very selective, and not just mass bombings and so on, I, I, that I get the feeling is happening in Afghanistan. They would make it quite clear why this village chief or why this office was uh, targeted. And they were especially good at targeting the a big American like billets and so on in various places throughout the country. So people knew why the terrorism was taking place. The communists believed that it was a cheap shot and counterproductive to just have random terrorism. But they were very selective, and they used it judiciously. So the women were very much swept up into this. They became very important. Often they would 
kind of suggest or persuade their buddies or their husbands or their friends to go join the Viet Cong. And the women also did important activities like uh, tipping off the intelligence and, uh, of course, keeping the rice production going and so on. So they really captivated the, the population. Now, you may wonder about the Darling Spies in the title of my book. This was my assistant, Pham Swan An. He was really a great person. Uh, he spoke fluent French and English and, of course, Vietnamese. He had studied journalism in um, Orange County, California, was on the student paper, and he loved it. He loved it. But as a teenager, he, like his buddies in high school, they joined uh, the Viet Minh to fight the French, to get the French kicked out. So when he came back from California, he said, well, we still got a colonial regime, and the Americans are no different than the French. So he continued ending up being an ace spy for Hanoi. And he operated alone. I had no idea. He worked for me, actually, the New York Hell Tribune from 64 until I left five years. And uh, <clears throat> very easygoing guy. Also very well informed. During this time, he gave me the carbons of some manuscript he typed out. Mao Zedong's choice uh, sayings on guerrilla warfare. And Mao identifies five kinds of spies. And um, An wasn't a very good typist, X is it. Uh, so An has in this manuscript, darling spies. I looked all over the web. There's a lot of Mao on the web, but no darling spies. And I showed it to my buddy, prof, over in American Studies. And he looked on the web, and he couldn't find it either. And I thought, you know, I wonder if this is legit. So I went to an uh, academic uh, journal that had an article by an mil American military analyst and so on, on Mao. And I found the real quote. Mao had said, daring spies. <laughs> so I thought, well, An was kind of like a, a darling spy in that the definition was somebody who serves both sides at great risk to themselves. So now the odd thing was um, <clears throat> An was paid by the New York Herald Tribune and other publications that I worked for, but his buddy, uh, Win Hu Vong, who was older and thinner, uh, I paid for him out of my own pocket because he was so, um, th they were buddies. But more than that, Vong spoke French, English, and read and write Chinese. He had been the son of a Vietnamese functionary who grew up in China and knew Chinese. So anyhow, the two of them would be arguing what Hanoi Radio was saying, what the communists were going to come up with, all of this. So I really had, later I found out Vung was working for the CIA back to World War II when they were trying to find the downed pilots in, in China and so on. So he'd been on the CIA payroll 
for a long time too. So I had spies on both sides of me, <laughs> completely unknown to me. And I don't think it affected my, co my copy at all because if anything, it kind of balanced out. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I'm sorry to say both of those are gone now, but Ahn has had television broadcasts and books written about him. The New Yorker had a series and that author wrote a book about him, The Spy Who Loved Us. And there's a, a prof in um, California uh, that is now making a movie out of, uh, out of this. And of course, Vietnamese television has already made a serial out of the whole, uh, they made a great hero out of on. But in fact, he was pretty influential. He was getting access to some of the American plans before uh, the Americans even got the logistics in there to carry them out. It was really phenomenal. Anyhow, uh, that was the um, background, sort of the Saigon era. Once the American support units came in, the main ones that were really helpful for journalists were the helicopter units. And they were also some of our best sources because, of course, they were going where the action was. This allowed the journalists to uh, you know, flip around the country on a space available basis when, whenever there was action in some little isolated place or some battle somewhere. I just kind of went in on a fluke to this place called Kamduk where uh, the government was setting up a brand new kind of fortress to pull the hill people in from the jungle areas so they could not help uh, the Viet Cong with uh, intelligence or with food or with portage and so on. And they were gonna pull them all into this kind of strategic hamlet program. Then they had new airplanes with loudspeakers. Everyone that get, isn't out of the jungle we're going to bomb it. So come into the government area so we can protect you. So one of the province chiefs uh, that I went with on one of these operations said, we tell them, this is going to be a death zone uh, if you don't leave the communist area and come over to safety on the government side. So I, I think I may have been the first one to use the, the, the exact phrase death zones very early in the war. Later on, of course, the Pentagon sanitized it to something like free fall zones. But frankly, they would just come in and bomb these areas that they suspected no one lived in, but they never sent out any ground troops to verify if any civilian casualties had been hit or what happened or not. Now, this was an example of the strategic hamlets and the forts that were really scattered in time all over the, the jungled areas because President Kennedy thought the thing that would allow the Americans to win when the French didn't was the helicopter and the special forces. So if you remember the Green Berets and so on, well, they were operating in these forts, training these hill people to be the fighters and to go out and check the infiltration and so on. So there were maybe about 100 of these over time that were built. By the time I left in seven years, uh, they had all either been evacuated, withdrawn, or overrun. Now many times these hill people that did the being trained 
had their families with them. So sometimes not all of them got out if they were being attacked and overrun. So of course they were pretty isolated and in time the big units and even heavy firepower on the communist side could come in and really just pick them off one by one. I've also looked at some of the fortifications that they're using for these uh, in Afghanistan. And to me, it's just a repeat pattern. They're isolated up on these hilltops. And you know, there's big stories when they're very close to overrun and very few of the guys get out. So these are sort of one of the ways that I think there's a repeat in some of the aspects of Vietnam. And now, this was one of the most interesting interviews that I had. Uh, this is a North Vietnamese private that was captured. And uh, I was able to interview him, Private Le Phong Ham. This was right before the 1964 election. Of course, the American government had always said, this is a war of aggression from North Vietnam into anti-communist South Vietnam. Uh, but they had never shown anyone specifically a North Vietnamese that they had captured or that had been defected in the South. Many of the people had come from the South, gone to the North in 1954, and then were re-infiltrated. And they were some of the support elements for the insurgency against the government. But they were basically Southerners who kind of made this round trip. But this was the first one that had been captured. And uh, the interesting thing is he said he came in with a North Vietnamese unit. So we wrote this story. And I had both Vietnamese and uh, American senior military people confirming, yes, there were these Vietnam North Vietnamese units coming in across the demilitarized zone. So I interviewed this young man, and uh, Vung, my interpreter, was a northerner. Well, the first that this young man opened his mouth, he could tell by the accent that he also was a, a northerner. So I wrote the story that North Vietnamese units were coming into the South. Well, before the election, Johnson was not eager to, in effect, show that the, the North Vietnamese were coming in because the Americans were not in a position to react in any significant way. So the Pentagon denied my story. But later on, then they started to beef up why they had to send in combat troops and so on. And uh, it turned out that my story was very accurate. And the Pentagon's papers indicate, too, that the Pentagon fudged the uh, figures until after the election. And it was a good example of news management. President Zam, he was um, in the United States at the time of the 1954 Geneva Conventions that ended the French Indochina War. But Eisenhower did not want the French to come back to Indochina, and they did not want the communists to take over Vietnam. So the deal was they split the country, and they were supposed to have elections in 1955. Well, even Eisenhower is on record saying, if we have an election, Ho Chi Minh is going to win by 80%. So they 
somehow finessed the election and all at once, President Zem was the president. Anyhow, he was uh, a Catholic, but most of the Vietnamese were basically Confucianist on, you know, on, in the real core values. But his brother had been killed by the communists and um, uh, he was uh, fervently anti-communist. So anyhow, even under Eisenhower, they started backing them. And then he had met Kennedy, Mansfield, some of the biggies in Washington. Uh, they started supporting him more and more. Kennedy then started the troop buildup and so on. Anyhow, they, uh, the side door, kind of the sneaking way when you cannot have any military power per se, is student or religious protests. So on May 8th, you began the urban upheaval. Instead of just insurgency and infiltration, you now have urban upheaval in the cities. And this was uh, an example of the Buddhists who were demonstrating having five demands against the Catholic president, said they were suffering oppression and so on. At the time that this started, um, I was in the hospital with hepatitis, which I had contacted from contaminated food and water in Vietnam, and I'd always been in Laos. So I, I wasn't on top of that story at all. But in June, this uh, Buddhist monk, an elderly monk, uh, Thich Quan Duc, I interviewed him about two days before he threatened to burn himself alive, and two days before he did it, and he was really a very placid, dedicated, sedate, elderly man. And two days later, they made sure that the AP correspondent was there with a good camera. And this was one of the most explosive story uh, photos ever, I think. Um, President Kennedy was talking to Robert Kennedy, the uh, Attorney General at the time, uh, when he saw this photo and he said, oh my God, you know, an expletive deleted. And um, then he later said that this was one of the most uh, momentous photographs, news photographs in history. So this photo really caught the attention of the Kennedy administration, but the whole country. I mean, th they got, Peter Arnett and uh, the AP Bureau got telegrams from all over the world, and people uh, interpreted it much different ways, but uh, it was, I think, a decisive moment in the war. And it was one of the factors as it snowballed and so on that led to the Americans cutting off their support for the ZEM government and really giving the green light for a coup d'etat. So November 1, just 50 years ago, this past November, um, the ZEM government fell. And then 22 days later, President Kennedy was assassinated. So that was a momentous autumn. And after Zem fell, the Buddhists and others wiped out 
the, the regime secret police, they had secret militia, and uh, a big network of supporters and so on. And, uh, and so the government was just non-existent. It deteriorated so fast that in 64, with all the changes in government and the communists were coming closer and closer to Saigon, I got a big um, kind of metal footlock and I put my best dresses and some books in there and I I might have to make a fast exit from here. So I was prepared to leave the country because we didn't know what was going to happen. And at the same time, uh, de Gaulle was suggesting a neutralist coalition. Well, of course, we know um, Johnson did not do that. Instead, he sent in the combat troops, not just support units that could operate to support the Vietnamese, <clears throat> These, this was the 173rd Airborne, which was the strategic reserve for the Americans based in uh, the Pacific. They sent them in first in this D-zone area, not too far where I had that, my first patrol. And uh, these were the first combat units. Notice how young they are. These were the draftees. Uh, they were the ones that were not lucky enough to go to graduate school, or some people, of course, they fled to Canada to avoid going to Vietnam. But anyhow, Hanoi called this the Teenage Brigade, and frankly, I think that's the age group most of them were in. They were always amazed to see me and wondered what was I doing there, and so on. And uh, well, I, I said, um, you know, I can leave any time, you can't. But I'm here to tell your story. So then they, <clears throat> then they, uh, you know, understood, uh, well, maybe it was, th this actually turned out to be <clears throat> one of the first offensive operations since the Korean War by this unit that they soon went on. When the American units came in, they brought with them tremendous firepower, artillery, big helicopters with much bigger machine guns on them and uh, always supported, you know, long range with uh, bombers and so on. The, the intensity of the fighting in, grew and grew and unbelievably, it also became much more dangerous for journalists. Dickie Chappelle was the most experienced combat correspondent in Vietnam, a woman who'd also been in World War I, World War II and Okinawa with the Marines. She'd been with the Marines in Lebanon. And uh, she was with Marines in 1966 on just a kind of little routine patrol killed by a landmine. So Vietnam was a very dangerous war for journalists. And um, it was also a war in which Television was just coming in, uh, and they started the first televised war. The first newscasts from the networks expanded from 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And so they tell the story that Johnson White House had three television sets in the White House, and he watched all three network news broadcasts at the same time because Vietnam had started to captivate people and mystify them. And um, actually, politically, it became more and more controversial. 
And of course, as the young men were getting closer to their draft numbers and so on, they started more student protests and other protests too. Um, and of course, the real mis casualties that we don't have a good number on were the civilian casualties in Vietnam. So many people were killed and wounded and misplaced and forced to relocate and so on. So this was one of the tragedies that I don't think um, is fully appreciated. And there are really no exact numbers. I think McNamara asked the North Vietnamese how many troops they lost. They didn't really know. But it was in the millions on the North Vietnamese side. <clears throat> well, if you remember uh, at all, in the 1967, uh, as we were approaching the 1960 election, 1968 election, uh, President Johnson called back the leading American General Westmoreland and the American Ambassador Bunker to give a pep talk to the population. They went before Congress to address and television broadcasts and oh, we're winning the war. And, and the general even said, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it was a lot of optimism that Johnson was trying to build up before the election. On January, end of January, you had what is called uh, the Lunar New Year for the Vietnamese. And as the tradition was, they had a ceasefire so that all the Vietnamese on both sides could go home to their families. So many of the Vietnamese on the government side did go back to the countryside to their families. And uh, we thought that the Viet Cong was going to take a, a, some sort of a ceasefire too. Well, instead, they launched a, a general offensive, which meant an offensive across the whole country. They hit many of the provincial capitals, and they hit uh, not only the American embassy in Saigon, but mainly many of the key points, including the first thing they always capture is the radio station and the Navy Yard, uh, where they had boats that were pro-Zam and so on. They also captured the city of Wei for 26 days. But uh, in, in order to sort of get on top and defeat the communists, the Americans and the South Vietnamese forces often had to call you know, firepower, planes, and artillery on their own troops, on their own compounds, even in their friendly villages. This is the, uh, the Zaloi Pagoda, which was the headquarters of the Buddhist um, headquarters for the demonstrations trying to get rid of the Zam government. And, um, and also, the government suspected that the communists had taken over uh, command of this pagoda. So in order to rectify it, the government I don't know if South Vietnamese or American planes had bombed the neighborhood all around this major pagoda. And this also in, uh, occurred in the provincial capitals. I, I went to Benhua, which was about 30 miles from Saigon, which was a major headquarters for uh, American logistics. And the communists were in the provincial capital, and they had to bomb even the housing of some of the Vietnamese troops' families. And some of the 
areas that were always you know, pro-government. And that's the only way they got rid of the communists. In Ben Trey, uh, the AP reporter went down there, and they had to do the same thing. The communists had overrun almost everything except the military compound and the provincial headquarters. And they called in artillery, even on their neighbors' homes. And the American major said to Peter Arnett, we had to destroy the town to save it. It became one of the most damaging quotes ever for the American policy. And Peter said uh, in his story, it shows the dilemma of the American uh, position here in Vietnam. You know, this tremendous firepower, but look at what you destroy and how you, in effect, turn people against you. Even in my place in Saigon, you could hear gunfire all over the streets. There were bombing air raids uh, across the river. And uh, so during uh, the, this Tet Offensive, uh, I wrote for the Christian Science Monitor, for the first time, there was a real possibility that the Americans might lose this war. So not for sure, but you know, it's really a display of the vulnerability of American power. And that story was picked up by the Columbia Journalism School that was celebrating its centennial year last year as one of the 50 top stories written by a Columbia alum in the past century. So I even forgot I made that prediction. It was pretty iffy, but I did say it pretty loud and clear. You know, this is not the way that you're going to win a war. Now, as I mentioned, that um, the communists, actually North Vietnamese, just came across the demilitarized zone and captured the city of Hue. They just marched their battalions straight down the main street of Hue. Hue was the cultural center of Vietnam. It was the old imperial capital, and it had a miniature forbidden city. Well, the Marines had to fight house to house and block by block to get them dislodged from, uh, uh, from Hue. I went in there as the, as the, about the 20th day. The communists held it for 26 days. And I landed right behind these marine lines. It was one of the scariest things because the helicopter came in. It was no level place to really land. He just kind of touched his, his foot uh, down. And it was misty. The gunfire uh, was having smoke all over. And I, I said, I, I don't know if I should have done this one or not. But anyhow, I hopped out behind the marine lines, and they just went almost house to house and street by street before they could clear the communists out of, um, out of way. I met one uh, old American sergeant who'd been in the Korean War. He said, this is so much worse than the Korean War in Seoul, because in Seoul, both armies marched through the city, but they didn't fight house to house through it like we did here. So Wei was pretty much decimated. And then uh, later on, they found a mass grave while the North Vietnamese were holding and, and um, controlling the city, they had targeted individuals mostly government officials or government sympathizers that they picked up 
and massacred, had a mass grave, and uh, they discovered this about three or four months later. So the way was a major, major loss. Now, the reason that way was so poorly defended is that many of the American units and some Vietnamese were actually up in the border area at Quezon. Um, General Westmoreland and President Johnson were so afraid that the communists were going to attack Quezon and make it the Den Bien Phu that had led to the French defeat. President Johnson even had a sandbox replica of, of um, uh, Quezon in the basement of the White House. And so they were really preparing for kind of a, a major repeat of the French experience. Instead, the communists pulled their forces over to the urban centers, and that's how they could capture the provincial capitals, and in this case, way. So I waited to fly into Quezon while the battles were still going on after way. Uh, in the hangar, there was a couple of other journalists with me. One was Sean Flynn. He was the son of the movie star, Errol Flynn, a good photographer. Well, later on, he went to Cambodia, and they've never found his body since. We assume that he's been killed, along with other correspondents. Just as we were waiting there to get on board, they brought the body out of Robert Ellison. He was a photographer that I had worked with on other stories. Very, very young guy, very talented. He got some fantastic photos of Quezon under fire and so on. Uh, later, it was the Newsweek cover and so on, but he was gone. So it was uh, a pretty dicey time for them. At Quezon, the shelling was occurring about every minute. The, the neat thing for the communists was they had artillery on the other side of the border in Laos, dug into the mountainsides so they could aim their artillery, pinpoint it at Quezon, and then pull their artillery back. And one of the officers said, you know, they have every place on this camp targeted. They can hit us, but we cannot hit them. Even though the Americans pulled in B-52s that ordinarily, out of Omaha, fly, uh, you know, the SAC bombers, the B-52s, they were dumping hundreds of uh, payloads in these areas, sometimes even as close as 1,000 yards from the camp, the American camp itself, even though the safety margin is 300, is 3,000 yards. Anyhow, they could not dislodge the North Vietnamese shelling, even under heavy bombardment. Well, eventually, the um, communists withdrew, and the fighting died down around Quezon. And one of the young Marines with the uh, 26th Regiment said, if nothing else was gained by the Vietnamese experience, let it at least be a warning not to ever, ever let it happen again. So that was... Um, Early 1968, as I was um, leaving Quezon, 
President Johnson made a startling announcement on March 1st, 1968. One, he would not seek re-election. And second, he would begin a bombing halt uh, to start the peace talks, which had been the communist condition in order to even start talking peace. Then shortly later on October 31st, Johnson ordered a complete bombing halt and said that the peace talks would start in Paris on November 6th, which was a day after the American election in 1968. Um, during that time, uh, of course, the uh, Saigon government kind of knew from what who, Humphrey was talking, he was the candidate to replace Johnson and the vice president, inheriting the Vietnam War from Johnson. He had already started to talk about a coalition government. Well, the South Vietnamese government had fought the communists so long they didn't want a coalition government because they thought over time they would end up controlling the country. Anyhow, um, a complete bombshell, the South Vietnamese president said, we're not going to Paris like the president wanted. And uh, so that kind of scuttled the idea that uh, Humphrey would be able to save the election and so on. So the question was, well, why wasn't President Thieu from Saigon go to uh, talk peace? Um, at that point, um, I wrote a story that the reason they wouldn't go is because Nixon, who was running against Humphrey, said, uh, don't rush to Paris. Uh, when I get to be president, I'll give you a better deal. In other words, everyone knew Nixon was pretty hardline anti-communist. And he also had good information through Anna Chenault and other people that uh, were a direct line to President Thieu. So I wrote the Christian Science Monitor that the reason uh, Saigon was not going right before the election was because of Nixon. Well, the editor said, we can't confirm that story, uh, so we can't run it. And he said, to run that story without a confirmation uh, would be virtual equivalent of treason. Little did he know at the time that President Johnson was saying the same thing because he was tapping the lines of the Saigon Embassy and he knew what was going on with the communication between Nixon and Saigon. And so, um, to my surprise, as I was writing my book, uh, I had researched some of this through the memoirs, but I did not know that the Monitor had sent their Washington correspondent to the Saigon Embassy to get a confirmation of uh, what Nixon was doing, or Nixon's people were doing, to stave off the peace talks. And they didn't get any, anything from the Saigon people. So then they went to the White House, and Ross Dow and Dean Rusk were there, and uh, Johnson was at the LBJ Ranch, and so they telegraphed him. And he saw my lead about Nixon's purported encouragement for Q not to go to the peace talks at this time. So there was a big powwow about what they're going to say 
publicly. It was right before the election. They chose to say nothing. They could have discounted it. They could have uh, confirmed it. Or they could have disclosed what Nixon was doing. But they thought among these uh, top leaders, it would be more damaging for the whole government to acknowledge this, in effect, double cross than uh, to either confirm my story or to uh, blow the whistle on Nixon. Anyhow, they did nothing. But they, they do know now that uh, all of this took place. There's a fabulous autobiography by Anna Chenault, who discloses all the time she went to see Nixon and also John Mitchell, who was the campaign manager. And so uh, because of that, uh, I wrote this final part of my book, which was picked up in this magazine that's devoted to Vietnam on the unexploded bombshell right before the election. And I really think that history would have been different in Vietnam if uh, Nixon had not been elected. Nixon assumed, I think, that he could make a deal with the communists, but they were holding tight. You know, they didn't have to really negotiate much. I am sure Humphrey would never have invaded Cambodia and uh, Laos and expanded the war. And uh, the, the war actually intensified and expanded a lot with the peace president coming in with Nixon. Anyhow, this was just ex this excerpt from my book was just picked up by this magazine. Uh, economics professor Robert Collins has called 1968 as uh, the year the American century came to an end. And I really think this was the beginning of the decline of the American prestige and power and belief in themselves. He argued that an economic crisis caused by the Vietnam War and the great society programs created a run on the dollar and the gold that both revealed and contributed to the passing of post-war US economic hegemony. I think that was the major, major turning point for the United States. And um, the next year I left Vietnam just as Richard Nixon was entering the White House. After that, the war intensified, spread to Laos and Cambodia, and led to the American withdrawal. So, two years later, Hanoi took over, you know, in 1965. So, thank you very much for your attention and um, this flashback to history that uh, I'm sorry to see is kind of some parallels that we might be experiencing as we bring our troops back from Afghanistan, deciding how many we're going to leave there, if any. And um, I think while we overthrew the Zem regime, uh, President Karzai in Afghanistan has reversed the roles here. He's kind of got the Americans in a position where they've got to do a lot of negotiating. I also see some parallels uh, at a different level between the death zones that I describe and the very targeted drone attacks, theoretically they are more precise, but they're still, you know, 
bombs from the heavens, and you're not always sure of exactly who the enemy is that's being hit. Anyhow, I will try to answer any questions if you have any. Come and answer. 